electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. Carl, thanks. Welcome to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. The big call on stocks from a top street strategist. Is your money about to go on a midsummer run? We'll debate that with the committee today. Joining me for the hour, Jenny Harrington, Steve Weiss, Josh Brown, Pete Najarian is the co-founder of MarketRebellion.com. Good to see everybody with us today. Let's check the markets. NASDAQ hitting a new high. It's been up five of the past six days. We are going to talk about David Costin's new target for the S&P in just a minute. However, we've got some more action from our committee on Robinhood that we want to get to first. Now that options trading is open for business, Pete, it opened for business yesterday. And uh, you got some action on today. Tell us. Yeah. Well, I can tell you this. um, The activity was unbelievably uh, robust yesterday. 325,000 contracts were trading yesterday. Obviously, the stock, 172 million. That's well more than on their IPO, which was closer to 100 million. So a lot of very uh, interesting activity coming in, Scott. About 50-50 calls and puts. But I think the most interesting part was the most active strike yesterday was the August 70s. Now, those August 70 calls traded 79,000 contracts alone yesterday. I just got done telling you 325,000 was the total. So this gives you a little idea of just how busy this particular strike was. They started very low early on in terms of the prices. That started to accelerate to the upside as the stock started to accelerate to the upside as well. That one definitely stood out. Here's the interesting part, however. Of the 79,000 today, the open interest is only 14,000. That gives you a good idea of how much trading is really occurring here. These aren't guys going in there and buying and just saying, you know what, I'm going to hold this for the next week. These are people that are in there for minutes or hours, and that's a lot of what everybody's been kicking around, meme stocks, all the rest of that kind of thing. Well, whatever the case, however you want to break it down, those are the real numbers. And I can also tell you the August 65 calls yesterday were extremely interesting. Started off the day at $4. Within minutes, they were $29. The volatilities, I think, early on, Scott, I think was miscalculated by those that were the professionals out there that were pricing this, and they were too low on their implied volatility, they immediately jacked up the implied volatility as they got more and more buyers coming in. You want to find that balance. As a former market maker myself standing on the trading floors, that's exactly what you've got to do. First of all, you need to start right. Second of all, even when right is right, you need to start to move around a little bit, and that's something that they did very rapidly to try to catch up to where the the supply and demand really were to get sort of a more even mix. That's exactly what they got to. But it took them about an hour or two into the trading session. Volatilities were up near 300 IV. They actually pulled all the way back down to 200, 250. Today, it's a lot closer to a 200 implied volatility. These are monstrous numbers, Scott, and a lot of what's been going on, at least today, in terms of of Robinhood. Uh, still seeing a lot of paper, but the, uh, the implied volatility continues to come down lower and lower and lower as the stock is kind of sort of held right around that 60 to 62 dollar uh, level. Obviously, I'm struck by the fact that you've got 50-50 split in calls versus puts, yeah. so it's the ultimate battleground uh, place. 
You also have a call spread on. Yeah. Pete, can you give me the exact details of yeah. what you've done here? Sure. I've got regular August, so there's all types of different strikes in August. There, there are months. You've got August 6th, the 13th, you go out. I'm regular expiring August calls. Um, I mean, I'm, I own the 65s. I sold the 70s. So what does that really mean? It means that I've reduced my risk. And I've also given myself a little bit less room to the upside if it's going to run to the upside. But I've got a, I've got a, it cost me about a dollar. I can make five dollars on the best scenario. I don't mind that. It's a one for five. That's an unbelievable type of reaction if we get that in a short period of time. I like what we're seeing. And Scott, in terms of that mix, the calls and the puts, just remember this. The shorting was not an issue, right? I mean, that takes a little while before there's folks out there and they start moving things around and, and shorting stocks. On the other side of things, puts, that's a way of shorting stocks as well if you're owning those puts. And I think that's partially what we were seeing yesterday was definitely some put sellers when the applied volatilities were a little bit too high. But I think we were also starting to see a lot of put buyers coming in, kind of evening out where everybody was with the calls and the puts. Steve Weiss, you were in and out a couple of times yesterday. We find out today that you are now out, but it seems to be changing by the minute. So can you give us an update on exactly what your position is? My, my position is zero at this point. Uh, I had I'd sold out most of it yesterday at around the 65 level. You traded up to 70 after that, so you feel a little foolish. But, hey, you make what you can. Feel foolish playing it all together, frankly. And uh, today I sold at 65. They've got a huge ATM. It's not a secondary. It's not the market. So they'll keep peeling up the stock. If I were the shareholders that are selling, I'd be very anxious to get that done at these levels. And uh, I think that's what they'll do. After that happens, you think it's off to the races again. But as you pointed out, and as Pete said by the numbers, it's the ultimate battleground stock. And my fear is that it's going to become too much of a distraction. So I'll likely lay off it unless there's a very clear momentum play here going forward, as we saw with GameStop. But, you know, I don't mind missing out. It was pretty good to me yesterday. And I'll take that as a win for now. You know, the other but thing. never say never the, in terms the, of The other thing, Pete, that, that I, I found interesting yesterday in our conversation with uh, Justin Jen of, of ThinkNum is when he said that, okay, Robinhood's the number one mentioned name on the Reddit boards. AMD is number two. And I said, so, you know, what's the next thing that we should look out for? And he mentioned Snap. You've seen some activity pick up right. in Snap, right? Yeah, we have seen some activity in there, Scott. We aren't seeing much um, going further out, though. A lot of that expired of, of the activity that we'd seen in SNAP expired at July 30th expiration, which was just last week. We don't have a whole lot of option paper going out into the future. So it'll be something I think we all want to keep an eye on. And certainly this is a stock. When you want to talk about movement, how about just in a two-week span, the stock going from $60 up to $76 in a very short time frame? So, yes, those are the kinds of stocks. So when we see that kind of movement, that kind of volatility that's where the options really do come into play so i wouldn't be surprised if we start to see flows again in snap coming back in All right, so there may be uh, some interesting trading activity in names like robin hood but it's interesting today as well that wolf is out wolf research says do not yolo this stock uh, why hood is uninvestable today that's the title of their note we cannot in good faith, they say, recommend investors get involved in Hood on either the long or the short side. Uh, and, you know, you can see why, obviously, with a fair level of volatility. Kramer uh, also urging investors to take profits as this has entered sort of meme land. I'm wondering, Josh, you know, as you observe all of this, as you, you like to do these sort of things, um, what do you make of it? <laughs> Does anyone see the irony in uh, Wolf Research saying that investors 
shouldn't be involved in Robin. There are no investors involved in Robin Hood. The investors were involved in Robin Hood thousands of percentage points ago in the private market. The people involved in Robin Hood now are playing. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's great. I actually find this to be one of the most fascinating um, IPOs to come along throughout the course of my career. If you told me, Scott, this, this stock will end the week at 30, I would believe you. If you told me it's going to end the week at 120, I would believe you. Yeah, I like you. I, you could convince me of either outcome, and there doesn't even have to be a reason for that. So I'm, I'm fixated on it. I'm watching it just like everybody else. Uh, there was a great movie called Birdman starring Michael Keaton. That was like a, a great example of just meta where it's a, it's a washed up actor who played a huge superhero character trying to get his career back in the theater. The irony being Michael Keaton actually was a washed up actor who played a big superhero character trying to get it. So this is as meta as it gets. Reckless speculation in a stock by a company that is the pinnacle of reckless speculation. I just, I, I love, I wish I had more artists to talk to about this because when I talk to other people in finance, they don't get how delicious this whole situation is. Yeah. I don't really have anything else constructive to say. They, no, I'm sorry. They, they did also have the news that insiders are going to have the option to sell uh, shares as well. So we're, we're just keeping an eye on the, on the whole thing. I bet thing. it goes up on that. Yeah, the, the other big story, Jenny, is, is what we sort of teased at the very top of the show, and that is David Costin the very well-respected strategist at Goldman Sachs, raising his street-high target now for the S&P to 4,700. So he joins the 4,700 club. Remember, Oppenheimer raised the target as well uh, earlier this uh, week, 4,700 from 43. Costin goes 47 from 43 as well. That's 7% from here. What do you make of his call today? Well, I like the way Josh said about Robin Hood. It could be at 30, it could be at 120. That's a little bit the way I feel about the market from here. It could be up 7% at the year end. It wouldn't surprise me. It could be down 7%. It wouldn't surprise me. But let's say he's right. That's interesting. It's plausible. I read his report. It's, you know, it supports his thesis well. But what's more interesting about this is what he goes on to say, which is that he expects it to be at 4,900 at the end of 2022. So what he's saying is, okay, I think the market's going to be up about 25% this year if it's up another 7%. But then in 2022, I only think it's going to be up 4%. And that's going to be a lot of slowing, a lot of tough comps, a lot of getting real. He also says that he thinks that the 10-year Treasury is going to trade from the 1.18% yield that it's at now to about one6 by the end of next year. And so I think if he's right, and that's a setup for 2022, which, by the way, we're already in August. We're getting closer and closer to 22. I think it's just this continuation of a return to normal. And this seems to be my recurring theme, is it's getting normal. Up 7%, that's normal. What we experienced last year, which was you know down 30, up 100, blah, 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 that wasn't normal. So this return to normalcy seems to be setting in. And even though his report sounds really glossy and wonderful, I think it's ultimately just a return to normal. And, um, and if that's the case, it's going to be hard work to make money. If the market's only up 7% between now and year end and only up 4% next year, you're going to need to work hard. That's why we get paid, right? Because we work hard. It's not always like last year where you just can shoot fish in a barrel at, you know, between May and August of last year. You could buy anything and it would go up nicely. From here on, it's going to be a lot of hard work. Well, so I think, you know, buckle up, get sober, get serious and do your homework. The return to normalcy, I mean, underscored by what the Fed may do between now and the end of next year. And mm -hmm. that may very well be playing into hey, the, hey, the reasons that Costin says what he does. Yeah, Josh, he also says, by the way, this is going to be driven I, I just, by upward revisions to EPS estimates and, <clears throat> excuse me, declining concerns about the Delta variant. So go ahead. 
So I, act, I actually think the most important point Costin makes has nothing to do with the earnings growth. I think that's in the market. We all understand the dynamics at play. I'm, you know, I'm a realist, and I like to look at charts, and I like to pay attention to what people are doing versus what people are saying. And I think the most important thing he talks about is share buyback announcements are already at $683 billion, and we're a little bit past halfway through the year. That's the second largest total ever at this point in the calendar. And so you have corporate buyers out there who have loads of cash and loads of access to very low-cost debt. I think buybacks are going to be a huge driver in the second half. I've been saying that all year because, don't forget, last year the buybacks were out of the picture. They were just not a supportive factor. The Fed and Treasury came in and picked up the slack. Uh, but now you have this new tailwind back. And the last peak we saw in buybacks was back in 2018. So I think that's important. The other thing is U.S. money market funds. Costin points out there's $5.4 trillion effectively sitting in brokerage firms as cash, earning nothing. And that's a trillion dollars higher than uh, the balances at the start of 2020 pre-pandemic. So that's, that's like a lot of money. Like I know we throw around the word trillion a lot. An extra trillion bucks above and beyond what we had at the start of uh, pre-pandemic. That, what, what happens with investors is they take a bunch of profits, they sell some stuff, maybe there's some volatility, they trim their position, whatever. And then two days go by, settlement occurs, they look around and they're like, all right, now what am I doing? So they just buy something else. And that is why we're hey, getting Scott. these rotations in the market. It's, it's why the, the recoveries have been V-shaped all this time. And I don't think that dynamic is going to change between now and December. I really don't. Weiss? Scott, I, I think that the, the most important part of Costin's comment uh, is that if we're still at a 1.6 by the end of next year, the market's going to go up a lot more than 4%. Because you're going to have easy money, it means that the market's going to be extremely comfortable with what's going on with the Fed, with how they've already massaged the market into knowing that we're going to cut back the bond buying by the end of this year. It seems that that's most likely right now, and that rates will go up very modestly. So if you're at one six versus the two percent or higher than two percent, which by the way I think will be okay, I think the market's got a lot more runway to go because easy money is alive and well. And to Josh's other comment, I actually think Birdman was the most overrated Academy Award picture I've ever seen. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, I didn't like I it. Throw that in there. I didn't like. Right. I didn't like it. All right, Thanks, good stuff. We Let, agree. Let's let's bring in a new voice to the conversation as well today. Adam Parker. He is uh, here. He's the founder of Trivariate Research. Uh, it's good to see AP. Great to see you. So you? you've got Costin at 4,700. You've got Opco at 4,700. You've got Ed Yardeni at 5,000 by the end of next year. Where are you at? I, I'm bullish, as you know, for the last nine months when you had me on. I'm bullish. I, I just think it's funny that you guys uh, talk so much about the, the target he set. You know, every strategist is going to live in every box of a two-by-two two grid, right? Bullish, bearish, right, and wrong. He has no idea what the S&P is going to be uh, at the end of 2022. Uh, and, you know, it's in the nobody knows nothing category. I, I, I think I agree with Weiss's comment at the end, though, uh, more than anything else I heard, which is if uh, yields stay low, the market's going to rip higher. And, you know, there's an, the irony I see, uh, Josh, is a guy raising his price target by 12 percent and, and nobody mentioning that, but then them focusing on the 4 percent upside he has next year as if that's uh, accurate. So, it, look, it's a, it's a tough thing to forecast. I'm bullish because I see 
positive earnings, a positive economy, an accommodative Fed, and a fiscal stimulus. And you want to fight that, you know, quadrangle, you know, go for it. But I don't think you should. So I basically have said that same thing for the last, you know, you know, year or two uh, when I've been on your program. And I continue to believe that equities have upside. The buyback helps. That's a great point. I'm not surprised it's the second largest buyback ever because it's the highest corporate profitability ever. So companies have money and they're going to buy back stock and do dividends. And that all makes equities better than every other asset class, uh, you know, bonds, et cetera. Well, I'm glad at least you don't have PTSD from your former life as Morgan Stanley's chief market strategist. You yeah, just hate it on the know, whole profession. You know, listen, I, the reason I started a boutique is because we can do more research and we don't have, you know, the taxes, taxes and the bigness disease of working at big firms. And you can, you know, just write research and talk to investors. And it's been fantastic to form my own company. But what I will tell you is investors are focused on what could impede earnings. And to me, that's the biggest investment debate. You know, I, I think earnings will be higher next year. As long as they're higher, I think people will pay above more, more, you know, normal multiples for those earnings. So I think that's the key focal point. Could could margins get impeded? Uh, could a rising input cost with labor or commodities offset the revenue growth? That's probably the most important tension because if earnings are higher, the market's, the market's going to be higher. I'll make that bet um, every day. Even if Clarida is correct and we meet the conditions to raise rates, as he said yesterday, uh, by the end of next year, that, that still holds if, if the Fed actually raises rates? Listen, I am positive that I've never thought that the Fed was anything but smart. OK, I always used to think it was really funny when there'd be like a guy out of college two years saying Bernanke was dumb in the last crisis. And I'd be thinking, well, he has a Ph.D. from Princeton is studying crises and the recoveries for 30 years. And, and he's the dumb one. You know, yeah, we, he said some, you know, it's contained what we all make mistakes. But all I'll say is like the Fed wants to create inflation and they're going to remain accommodative as long as they can. And I don't think they're going to, uh, you know, err on the side of, um, you know, raising prematurely. They want to see stable pricing. They want to see full employment. There's a ways to go and they're going to wait. And I'm not going to, you know, get bearish on equities because uh, it could be 2024 or 25, not, you know, Q3 2022 when they raise rates. So I, I think we should wait and assume they want inflation because that's easier for them to correct as opposed to, uh, you know, getting in front of, you know, uh, one or two uh, comments by, you know, different people out there. That's that's what I've learned so far by following them is assume they're going to be accommodative longer than you think. Okay, so just keep kicking the ball through the goalposts until the goalposts move. I suppose. Would you? Would you? Would you do something differently? No, no. Right. But you know, the market starts to look forward at some point, right? Usually does. And if oh. it really does think that rates are going to go up in calendar year 2022, it's probably going to sniff it out sooner rather than later, don't you think? And I think that's why a little bit you've seen in the last two or three months a pause in the reflation trade, right? The stuff that ripped energy, select semis, materials, even though they've had great earnings, you know, they've kind of paused. I think the question is, you know, do you get that reflation trade again? It's because people believe that, you know, maybe it's a little bit less transitory than they thought earlier and there's more upside. I do. And so there's a lot of stocks in that space that I would buy on this on this sort of pause, right? Because, you know, you, you have a lot of upside to earnings and these companies can really have improved their balance sheet so much this cycle that even if it is transitory, they're not going to destroy uh, all the profits, excess profits from the cycle. So, you know, by, you know, like Steel Dynamics or whatever, there's a bunch of companies that had $3 annual assessments on January 1st and are $13 estimates now. It's not just like they're 10, 10% upside, it's massive upside. So I, I think you can go back to those names safely now. Well, give me some more names then. I mean, since you're We're, look, I'm bullish. I'm talk, let's walk I'm, the walk. I mean, um, yeah, I, the whole crew I'm, has questions for you, too, not surprisingly. But now that you open the door, let's go through it. I, I, I just like I'm bullish on materials. I'm bullish on energy. 
I, I, I like healthcare services, you know, anything that I feel like has upside on margin expectations. So, you know, I'm bullish. And so when you're bullish, you want some cyclical exposure with margin expansion. Josh Brown. Hope, let's, I'd love to hear the questions. Like, I, you let's know, do it. Great, Let, let's play ball. Crew. Let's yeah. let's do it. Josh, I Brown. mean, you know me. Give me the give me the ball, Coach. I hear you. I hear you. You get better get better catch it. Go ahead, Josh Brown. <laughs> I'm always open. <laughs> hey, Adam. One of the things. Throw one, me the damn one ball. of the things Where that I've always appreciated. Sorry, Josh. One of the things I've always appreciated about one of the things I've always appreciated about your work is that you say very obvious things that end up being the most important things to pay attention to. And in the department of obvious things, I look at price action. Like if you just if you stop looking at the SPY or the SPX for five seconds and you just think about the 50 most important stocks. And let's be honest, that's what's driving the the, the index these days. They pretty much all look great. Like Home Depot looks outstanding. Nike and Chipotle all time highs right now. Um, and then you look at the tech, the tech names, the the NDX is at an all time record high as we're speaking. And not one of the big five are at an all-time high. So the fangs aren't even doing this today. Actually, the QQEW, which is NASDAQ equal weight, is at an all-time high as well. So when you have technology and those are form- uh, Costco new highs, Walmart just broke out. So when you have the biggest consumer, really, and I'm not saying these are the best stocks to buy, but when you have the biggest yeah. consumer names looking great, combined with an equal weight NASDAQ high, meaning all of those tech names and biotech, like what what else do you want out of life if you're trying to assess which direction the market's going? Am I making that too easy? Is it not that simple? Like what, what do you no, think about Josh, that premise? Josh, what, what, I think what you and I agree on, and I've said this before, is whenever you're bullish, you sound dumb. Okay, when you're bearish, you sound much smarter. You talk about you know, Taiwan and the. I, I, I think about things I typed in my, you know, machine in the last ten years. I think I typed Cyprus in at one point, as if that mattered for Fang's earnings, right? So what I've learned is, you know, that that stuff. It, you, you're, you're bullish. You keep it simple. The U.S. consumer, you're making a great point, as part of the reason I'm bullish, is in great shape. The savings rate is high. 90-day credit card delinquencies are at an all-time low. People aren't having trouble making the payment. In other words, so the consumer's in great shape, and I I, I think that's right. Um, And I think the FANG-M thing is is pausing. Uh, You know, maybe the stocks had very strong revisions, but they got a little ahead of themselves, you know, on the multiple, and they'll they'll work their way in. But they're probably still buys, in my opinion, too, at 22% of the S&P with pretty solid earnings. I don't know why they would, you know, be bad, bad securities. But I agree with you. The breadth's good and the consumer's good, and that's a reason to be bullish. Jenny Harrington. All right. Hi, Adam. Um, Hi, Jenny. So as students of history of the market. Great. How are you? And um, you know, as you know, I 99.9% of the time agree with you. But one yeah, of the things that I, that I think that you'll agree. Yeah. Thanks. Um, is as students of the market, we know that if you take any time period, right, being bullish is the winning is the winning strategy. <laughs> so I feel like the smart, safe bet is just be bullish, right? You're, you're pretty much always going to win. You can always adjust your time period to make it look good. Um, Equities have been so good. Putting yeah. that aside, then you talk about yeah, you put aside, you know, you then think about degrees of bullishness. Are we up another 20% or are we going to be up 4%, whatever it is. But then I think you said something really important, which is normalizing multiples. And I think it would be interesting if you can expand a little bit on that, particularly with your mention of materials and energy. Like, what do you think normalizing multiples looks like? Is that broad for the market? Is it individual stocks? What do the different sectors do to get to yeah. what you consider to be normal multiples? Look, I, look, I mean, long-term history, If you know you know the data, forward earnings date of existence since 1978, the long-term forward average has been 17 times the trailing 15. 
Um, that's predicated on much lower net margins and I think a, a different you know, constitution of the market. But, so I think the market multiple probably is going to be in the 20s for a long time because the constitution is different. I have 20% of the market, 22% I think of the market cap is FANG M plus or minus. Um, I've got, I, I know I 600 of the biggest 3,000 U.S. equities are biotech and software, where investors aren't really as focused on current profitability as they are, you know, for the recurring uh, nature of it in the future. Uh, so th those are remaining growth stocks for longer. Profit margins are very high. Large cap, large cap stocks didn't even have any gross margin contraction during COVID. So the capital intensity is down. The number of companies that even have inventory is is way, you know, the, the business models are totally different than history. So my my view is multiples are going to remain elevated, uh, and and you know because of the profitability and the constitution of the market. You know, not only that, but um, you know the. You, know, you mentioned the cash. I love that point. I think Josh did with a 1.7 percent dividend, a 2.2 percent or so net buyback, possibly growing, um, and this call option on earnings. I don't see any other major liquid market that's anywhere near as attractive. So I think multiples, you know, with, with real rates where they are, can continue to be elevated and go higher. The point I was making on the cyclicals was just looking at like a. I, I don't have the you know the data in front of me, but like if you take like a Steel Dynamics or something, I think they have like. 15 or 16 percent free cash flow yield. So people are saying sell all commodities and cyclicals when they're cheap and buy them when they're expensive. That's the playbook. But I'm just pushing back on that point, Jenny, by saying, well, maybe this time you know you can buy them when they're cheap because the cycle profitability is so high that they can like delever the whole balance sheet this year and then command a cycle to cycle multiple expansion. So that's probably those areas that I would argue for the most multiple expansion from here. Steve Weiss, lastly to you. Hey, Steve. Hey, how you doing, Adam? Uh, first of all, I'm supposed to be the cynical one on the show, so stay in your lane a little bit. Secondly, in, we've had now everybody except, I think, Pete opine on, on the market. And nobody's mentioned COVID and the, reserve, and the Delta uh, virus and then the yeah. Lambda and, you know, the other variants. So yeah. is that because it's not a risk anymore or is that going to be the canary in the coal mine that catches all by surprise? We've already seen some shutdowns because of Delta. Um, so wondering how you're thinking about terms yeah, of your I, risk. I think that's I, I think I think that's a risk. The way I'm fr framing that risk or the way I would manage the risk in a portfolio would be to look at my work from home exposure, my reopen exposure and then my quality and my junk exposure. So what I mean by that is. If you look back pre-COVID, we have stocks that have a high correlation to a work-from-home basket that are also low-quality, levered balance sheets, cyclical businesses. They've still outperformed quality reopening. So I would own these quality businesses. There are some hotels and there are select kind of reopening plays that have better balance sheets. That probably feels safer to me, Steve, than going to the really low-quality uh, you know, kind of kind of consumer stocks. Some of the REITs look riskier where they're entertainment REITs or lodging REITs that have, you know, worse balance sheets. So I, I think you want to skew up the quality stack. And frankly, in so many ways, this cycle is rhyming the 2009 and 10 recovery. The first year you saw low quality stocks outperform. Then 12 to 15 months after you migrated to the quality stack. I think that's the same thing this time. You know, that return to normal thing you're talking about, I think that get even includes the types of stocks that work. Uh, which you have to go up the quality stack. So I think the answer to your question, Steve, is, yeah, avoid some of the really low-quality stuff that's ripped, that really has levered balance sheets, migrate to the quality reopening stuff as opposed to the, the junk reopening. Appreciate it as always, AP. We'll see you soon. All right. Great to see you guys. Be well. Take yeah, care. You as well. That's Adam Parker right. Trivariate joining us once again today. Another big interview coming tomorrow. Keith Meister, Corvex Management, is going to join us. Exclusive. Looking forward to that. Catch up with him. It's been a while. See what he thinks about the landscape.
That's tomorrow, 12 Eastern, right here on the Halftime Report. When we come back, Penn National Gaming beating earnings estimates, announcing a deal to buy one of the most popular sports content betting platforms. We'll have an exclusive with the CEO of Penn National. Do it next, right here on the Half. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. I'm Rahel Solomon, and here is our CNBC News update at this hour. AFL-CIO President Richard Trumka has died. Trumka led the 12.5 million member Labor Federation since 2009. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer going on the Senate floor and commending Trumka as a great friend and a fierce warrior. He was 72 years old. The head of the CDC says that half of new U.S. COVID cases are happening in the seven states with the lowest vaccination rates. Texas and Florida make up a third of new cases, even though they account for less than one-sixth of the U.S. population. New York State's Judiciary Committee says that it is nearing completion of its investigation into Governor Andrew Cuomo and that the state assembly will soon consider articles of impeachment against the governor. The committee has set a deadline of August 13th for Cuomo and his attorneys to submit evidence. And on the news, what happens next on the road to impeaching Cuomo? That, of course, airs tonight at 7 p.m. Eastern. You're now up to date, Scott. I'll send it back to you. Rahel, we appreciate it. Rahel Solomon, thank you very much. All right, let's talk about some of the moves everybody is making today. Jenny, you bought more of a couple of things, Lumen and Unum. Tell me. Right. They reported earnings, and the earnings numbers were actually really good, but in the conference calls, there were, there were things that people picked on. In the case of Unum, it was charges to the long-term care block, and in the case of... Um, of Lumen, it, I think it really came down to skepticism about the maintenance of the dividend in the future. So the stock sold off a ton. I'm comfortable they're both trading under 10 times earnings. They both have plenty of, of reasonable earnings growth ahead. So I added to them four clients with new accounts with new cash and who didn't own them already. So I was, I was psyched to buy them at uh, discounts yesterday. Okay. Steve Weiss, you're looking to buy a little more Skyworks? I mean, we should probably hit you on Corvo, too. That stock has started to pick up a little bit of momentum, was flat earlier this morning, was up a couple of percentage points the last time I checked. So you can tell me about Skyworks that you're looking at and about Corvo, which I believe you still own? I do. So I have core positions in both, and I uh, traditionally trade around the core positions, not selling the core, but adding to them when there's opportunity. Corvo was an excellent quarter, beat and raised like Skyworks. These companies always get different reactions on their earnings. If you just took the tickers off and showed the earnings, you wouldn't know which was up and which was down. So I think Skyworks is still at a discount here. They're picking up major business with Apple's new launch. 
So I'm thinking of adding to it here, but I haven't touched the core position either. Corval, I'd added, as you recall, when I had originally sold my Comcast. So that turned out to be a phenomenal trade. Trade. Hopefully, Farmer Jim is listening, All right. and I'm sticking with it. Okay, shares of Penn <laughs> National Gaming rising on an earnings beat and its $2 billion sports betting deal. CNBC's Contessa Brewer joining us now with a CNBC exclusive interview. Hey, Contessa. Hi there, Scott. Yeah, Penn shares rising on that news that it's acquiring the score. But I want to point out the, the shares of the score. They are skyrocketing now, almost up eight, uh, 80% on this news of this deal. It's a Canadian sports content powerhouse. With me now, Jay Snowden, CEO of Penn National Gaming, and John Levy, CEO of The Score, both on with me at the same time. Good to see you both. Uh, Jay, you know, you had a great earnings call. Nobody cares because everybody's talking about this deal now. Coverage of The Score is pretty thin here, but I want to point out the analysts who do cover it had predicted expectations for 2022 revenue, roughly 46 million U.S. dollars. This deal valued at $2 billion means that you're looking at a 43 times 2022 revenue. How do you extract a return on that investment? Well, good, good to talk to you, Contessa. We're certainly not valuing uh, the score on 2022 anything. This is about the long term, what we're creating together. John Levy and I have known each other for years and uh, actually, funny enough, talked a couple of years ago in Las Vegas at a lounge at G2E about someday these companies are going to come together and the timing was right. Uh, we have a shared vision for the space. You know, uh, John Levy and the b- great business that he has built at the score in Canada. They're the number one sports media app in all of Canada. They're number three in North America. And he's a big believer that integration of media and sports betting is what's going to create the winners long term. And we obviously share that same vision. We've been doing that with our partners at Barstool, um, Dave Portnoy and Big Cat and the other personality leaders at Barstool have been huge fans of the score. So this is one of those rare deal, deals where you've got three parties and all three have tremendous respect for each other and excitement about the future. So this is a lot more about revenue upside in the out years, 2023, 2024, the Canadian opportunity, which as you know, Canada just legalized single game sports betting. Um, Ontario, Toronto more specifically is John Levy's backyard and home turf. And we're excited to see what they can do there. And this is much bigger than anything about 2022. Yeah, in your release, you said you're looking for a $30 billion total addressable market in North America, but really putting the emphasis on the technology that the score brings to the table. So, John, let's talk about that, because Penn's been using Canby. It just put out a statement saying, hey, look, we have a long term deal with Penn, but there were well publicized hiccups in the Super Bowl with the technology. Talk a little bit about what you're bringing to the table that can differentiate Penn from a very crowded sports betting space. First of all, it's good to see you, Contessa. You know, we are a digital sports media company, but we really have always been based on the tech. And right from the get-go, when PASPA fell, and we have this great app with North American exposure, you know, four or five million average monthly users, two-thirds in the U.S., a third in Canada. You know, we always knew that if we're going to get into the betting business, that we have to do it the same way we did with the growth of the app, and that's to own your own technology. So even though we did that, deal, it allowed us the flexibility to continue to build it on our own. And that's what we've been doing over the last couple of years. And and it pays off huge dividends. And I'm not just talking about the savings because you don't have to pay a third party to do it, but it's your own 
it's your own technology and you get to integrate it. And for us, that's very important because I think the whole thrust is to sort of integrate the technology and integrate sports betting into the media app. So, you know, it allows us the flexibility to do all the sort of things that we've been doing for a couple of years. And it gives Penn this enormous leg up to, to, to be able to, to do everything that we're planning to do over the next few years. I want to point out the Levy family will continue to operate the score in Canada, becoming sort of partners with Penn in this case. Um, on the news of the deal here, Jay, social media blew up uh, with Barstool's chief character, I'm going to call him Dave Portnoy. Um, I'm looking here at, at Twitter. There is so much heat, so many questions over whether there was insider trading because he flat out loved the score before this was ever coming on, said he wouldn't let go of it. Today, he's already vehemently denying any sort of knowledge of this deal coming down the pike. Let me ask you, having such a, an outspoken and sometimes controversial character as a brand ambassador, does it put your brand at risk? Does it put your go- corporate governance at risk? I don't think so at all, Contessa. Uh, Dave Portnoy uh, is Dave Portnoy, and, and we acquired the Barstool Sports brand and the company because we have tremendous respect for Dave and the company that he's built and Eric and Ardini and Dan Katz and the rest of the crew there. And they're, they're super smart. They're super passionate. Um, Dave Portnoy owns stocks. That's a fact. Um, as I understand it, he bought the score when they went public in the U S back in February. And we didn't even start talking to John Levy until May or June. So this idea that there would be insider information is there's nothing, there's no there, there, um, we would not buy a company based on what stock Dave Portnoy owns. He can buy and sell whatever stocks he wants. When I brought him under the tent on this, uh, he has been radio silent and hasn't touched his shares from that time. And those are the facts. So there's really there's nothing there. Um, Dave and Erica and Dan are the power behind that brand. And they have been the most amazing partners I could have ever asked for from the day we announced the deal back in January of 2020. We're a year and a half into this. We're just getting started and they love the score. Um, I think Dave bought the stock back in February because he's a believer and he's had the app for 10 years or so. And, um, you know, he's excited about where we're, where we're the, the, the paths that we have to creating value. And I know John Levy and I are just as excited about the future when you think about all three of us combined. Hey, Jay, uh, it's Scott Wapner. It's good to have you on the program. Before I let you run, I, I just can't help but notice since we we talk about stocks. We have people on the program who have previously owned Penn and and thus our viewers probably follow them into some of these trades. Your stock's down 50 percent from a 52 week high. Why do you think that is? What's what, what's the issue? Well, I think there's been a little bit of downward pressure on this entire sector. As you look at uh, gambling stocks and sports betting, uh, DraftKings, everybody's down over the course of the last six months, there's a little bit of just headwind pressure on the sector. I think that that will subside. We're headed into football season, and I think there's a lot more focus on the names headed into the busiest sports time of the year from a calendar perspective. We have we are currently only live in four states. We're going to be live in nine by kickoff, uh, assuming that the last couple of states, Tennessee and Arizona, are ready for us, and probably 11 or 12 by the end of this year. So we've got a lot of momentum, I think, you know, acquiring the score and having them become part of the portfolio here and the great technology they bring to the table along with the great uh, top of funnel 
that we have with Barstool is going to create, we think, the most powerful combination in the space. And, uh, you know, stocks yeah. rise, they fall, and everything in between. I, I'm very excited to think about where we'll be in a year, two years, three years, five years from now, and none of us are going anywhere. And stocks across the gaming industry up on the day today. Jay Snowden, John Levy, I'll look forward to seeing both of you guys in person at the next G2E. Thanks. Thanks, Thank Kyle. Thanks. All right, Contessa, we appreciate it very much. Thank you. Still ahead, Pete has his latest unusual activity. We'll do that in two minutes. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to the Halftime Report. I'm Dominic Chu with a market flash on Nautilus Biotechnology. If you take a look at the shares right now, they're up roughly 30% after two trading volatility halts to the upside. This after CNBC has published a story about Amazon being an investor in this company, holding a $15 million stake in the firm. This is a pre-revenue biotechnology company that specializes in the human proteome. It's unclear whether or not Amazon is currently engaged in other endeavors with it. However, that particular bit of news from a regulatory filing made last week is sending those shares higher. It was a sub $1 billion company. Right now, the market cap is currently hovering just around one and a quarter billion dollars right now. So that's the reason why those shares are moving. We'll bring you more as we know more here. But that's the reason why Nautilus is on the move higher. Keep it right here. We'll have more halftime report coming back after this commercial break. Pete, Nigerian, unusual activity. What do you have today? I've got a great couple of them for you, Scott. I've got KKR, which is sitting right now near its 52-week highs. Absolutely explosive move to the upside. When you've got cheap debt and strong markets, this company's doing very, very well. Somebody thinks it's going to break out even further and, and get even maybe through 70 because we're seeing September 70 calls, 4,400 of those calls being bought in KKR for around a dollar. My second one's pretty interesting as well, Home Depot. And we haven't talked about this name in a while. Stock was trading around 335 or thereabouts in that price range. And we had buyers of the August 13th. 337 and a half calls. So it won't take a whole lot for the stock to get up to that level. And somebody's thinking that they're, they're, that's going to happen in a hurry. 250 to 360 is the prices on those. They bought a little over 4,000 of those calls. All right, Pete, thank you. Uber is pushing higher on the back of its earnings. Pete, we're going to debate that stock next because Josh Brown owns it. It's up 4% backward after this. All right, there's Uber up better than 4%. Now, Josh Brown, your review of the numbers. I mean, the, the business is on fire. So the only negative here um, is that they've had to do some unexpected things to get drivers. And we know this is a challenge throughout the economy. But outside of that, uh, they're sticking to uh, becoming profitable on an adjusted basis in the fourth quarter, which is what Dara has been telling us. I think they can do it. Uh, and if they do, uh, I really think that that'll be a major catalyst for the stock. And I don't think you'll have to wait that long. Um, so this is a company that essentially is crushing it in both mobility, where rides are up substantially. They did 1.5 billion trips uh, in this past quarter. Think about how big that number is. And then on the Uber Eats and delivery side, that's now a bigger business than mobility. 
um, it's actually overshadowing that business in terms of revenue. So uh, I'm still very much invested. I like the story going forward from here. And uh, they're executing. Hey, Pete, you own Uber Calls. You say you'll yeah. probably trim today. Why so? Yeah, uh, well, you know, the numbers that Josh is talking about, they're great. Uh, the one issue I have with what these earnings were, were I think you have to look at it as more as a comparison of quarter over quarter versus year, year to day, year over year. And the reason I say that is you really can't compare it from a year ago. I mean, especially in the case of Uber and what they do and everything. And Josh knows about this. I mean, all the rides. The one thing that I was a little bit disappointed in, yes, the rides are awesome and those numbers are incredible, but the growth quarter over quarter was not as big as maybe expected, about 4%. So because of that, I think they're doing everything right. I think they're, they're moving in all the right places. But I think labor is going to continue to be an issue for Uber going forward, just like it is for Lyft. All right, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll do final trades next. Missed the show? Don't sweat it. The Halftime Report now has a podcast, market-moving interviews, call of the day, unusual activity, and, of course, Ask Halftime. Look for us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcasting app. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Remind you, once again, we have a halftime exclusive interview tomorrow with Keith Meister. He is the founder and managing partner of Corvex Capital tomorrow, 12 o'clock Eastern. Look forward to that conversation. Jenny, let's have a quick conversation about Viacom CBS. It's up uh, 6% or so after earnings. Yeah, they had a great quarter. They'd be on revenues, they'd be on streaming ad revenues, they'd be on streaming subscribers. And the thing that I love about it is even after the crazy roller coaster year that we've all seen it had, my investment thesis is intact. I originally bought this for 16 bucks last May. Even at about $40, it's still the same, which is content is super valuable. It drives cash flows. Stocks trading at nine times earnings versus peers. Comcast at 20, Netflix at 53, Discovery at 11 times. I don't know if it should be at 15 times or 20 times. All I know is that it's way too cheap and has valuable assets. Okay, uh, we appreciate that. What is your final trade while I have you? Iron Mountain, 5.8% yield, just beat, had a really nice quarter, and they're marching ever faster towards their digital warehousing space. Okay, we'll see that stock uh, there's about three quarters of 1% today. Pete Nigerian. I'm going to give you the real, real, Scott, R-E-A-L. This one just hit again on our options, and, and I'll tell you what, the stock sold off, people are buying, they're looking for a pop to the upside, I'm in this call. Okay, Josh Brown. Hey, Pete, my fabulous jacket, that- real, real. Thank See? You. Nice. Thank you. <laughs> Josh Brown. Staying long, Uber. Okay. Uh, finally, Steve Weiss, what do you have for us? Looks like Moderna. Here's a super real Moderna. There you go, Scott. You're right. <laughs> you don't have anything else to say about it? <laughs> do I have to? It's a self evident truth. Stock's up, stock's up tenfold, and yet. It's only down 1%. That means there's a real, real reservoir of people looking to get in. It goes higher. Just buy it, put it away. <laughs> All right. Like, like Pete, just Thanks put it away. Thanks, everybody. Thanks for watching okay. as well. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. You seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy.
when you visit Acura.com to order yours today.